So we're in, uh, we're in part three of a series that I've called The Forerunner. And um, so I'm just going to recap for a couple of minutes because there are people here that weren't here for part one. Or perhaps you came for part two and not part one. You were here for part one, not part two. And this is part three. So the concept of a kingdom forerunner is that a forerunner, a kingdom forerunner steps outside traditional church culture that threatens to stifle us in empty religious practice and they step into the unknown in a sense because they step into the fullness of the promise of God's spirit. Kingdom forerunners pursue intimacy with the Father and out of that place of intimacy should be birthed within us a righteous fury that burns against compromise, burns against complacency, burns against lukewarmness, and burns against empty religion. Jesus is my identity. He's not my religion. He's my identity. I progressively die to self and he progressively grows in me. And so out of that place of intimacy, authority is entrusted to us in this concept called sonship. Now, sonship uh, is not a license to do what you want. Sonship uh, comes with responsibilities and comes within an authority structure. And the reason that we need authority structures in the kingdom is because we are in a war. In case you didn't understand, the minute that you gave your life to Jesus, all hell declared war on you and your new identity. Because what happened to you is what Jesus came for, the redemption of all mankind. And kingdom forerunners are entrusted with this message to bring others to Jesus. And the enemy does not want that to happen. And so the enemy's time is short. He knows that his opportunities to wreak havoc are diminishing. And in this particular season in church history, as he has done going right back, he has released a particular ruling spirit, particularly against the church, but it also infects governments. It infects culture. That ruling spirit's name is Jezebel. Now, I want, you to, uh, I want you to bear this in mind for a minute. I don't think I have ever in our church, in, ever in my ministry, I have never preached a 12-point sermon. I'm about to preach one today. And the reason that I'm going to preach it is because I'm believing by faith. In fact, I'm going to pray this. I just want to thank you, Jesus, that you have your agenda you have an agenda that speaks through all eternity and every other spirit must bow before that name. I want to thank you, Father God, that today you reveal in every heart any hindrance that might, us keep, that might keep us back from the completion of your identity, the full stature, the knowledge of Christ manifested in each person in this building this morning. I pray, Father God, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, that conviction would fall upon every heart in the areas in which we have compromised and allowed these things to influence us and influence our sphere of influence. 
in the name of Jesus. So just recapping in part one, we dealt with the forerunner prophet Elijah and his confrontation with Jezebel and how his failure to anoint Jehu as king over Israel resulted in the reign of Ahab and Jezebel lasting at least 10 years longer than it should have. His mission was left incomplete. If, uh, if, that's, uh, if, if that's something that you haven't heard before, I, I urge you to go back and watch the, the YouTube video of this couple of weeks ago. In part two, we dealt with the forerunner prophet John the Baptist and the terrible crisis that he faced in his faith shortly before his death because of the manipulation and undermining of his forerunner ministry by the Jezebel spirit operating through Herodias. And he asked the outrageous question of Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for or do we do look for another? Do you remember this from last week? Something happened within him. Something got twisted inside him and uh, eventually he was beheaded. It's not very good news so far, is it? <laughs> so what about us? Is there somewhere else in the New Testament where we can identify what God wants us to do with this ruling spirit? I'm glad you asked. Because <laughs> now we're moving to the third forerunner ministry that I see in confrontation with this spirit. And this is a ministry of a church that was planted in a region within what is modern Turkey. And the name of that place was Thyatira. I don't know if I pronounced that right, but it's close enough. Thyatira. And this church was probably founded around 40 AD. And in the book of Revelation, it appears as one of the seven churches that Jesus speaks to through John. And these churches, I want you to understand here because so much of the book of Revelation is symbolic, right? There's dragons, there's, there's all sorts of stuff going on in the book of Revelation. But in the first couple of chapters, we're dealing with actual events and actual churches that Jesus is speaking to at that time. And so when John writes to the church in Thyatira on behalf of Jesus, they are a young church, a forerunner church, carrying the presence and power of the Holy Spirit as all of those churches did early on. We're only a few years out from the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus and the apostles have gone all over the place. They've planted churches, planted ministries and people are growing up into the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And yet Jesus comes and he points to a serious compromise in the ministry of this church for they have allowed the spirit of Jezebel to so infiltrate that they have fallen into sexual immorality and the worship of other idols. So we're going to Revelation 2 and we're going um, from verse 18. This is Jesus speaking to John. He says, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things, says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more, the, the last are more than the first. And I read that and I think to myself, this is a church that has a serious commitment to God. They have the works. They love. 
They serve. They're strong in faith. They're patient. And in fact, they are more productive at the time that they are written to than they were at their beginning. This is a church that's regarded as a healthy, growing church by most standards. But then in verse 20, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And just as a a little byline here, when you read uh, that particular scripture in the Greek and you get to that term sexual immorality, in the Greek it is porne, from which we get the term pornography. I want you to understand how insidious all these things are. And when he talks about eating things offered to idols, he's referring to members of the church taking part in pagan rituals. This is a church that has become seriously compromised, even though it looks good on the outside. Then he goes on to say, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. This presents a huge theological problem to anybody who subscribes to a grace doctrine that teaches you that your morality and your behavior have no bearing on how God deals with you. Did you get that? This presents a huge theological problem to anybody who subscribes to a grace doctrine that teaches that your morality and your behavior have no bearing on how God deals with you. Because no matter how you view the book of Revelation as a whole, I don't believe that there are any serious Bible scholars out there that would dispute that this church was a physical entity. This is not some metaphysical expression. This is not an allegory. This is not a symbolic thing that's being written here. This is being written to a specific church at a specific time in a specific place, but it has a prophetic uh, realm attached to it that speaks to us because it's a warning to us, just like the lukewarm church in Laodicea and the other churches that are criticized in those letters. Jesus is laying out the things that he doesn't want going on in his body before he comes. And so uh, this is the reason Jesus is speaking to this church. And in fact, what he's saying is he's going to release judgment on those hosting the spirit of Jezebel. Unless you have a different interpretation for casting the prophetess into a sickbed. This prophetess has sowed and now is going to reap. It's getting very quiet in here. It gets better. Verse 23. I will kill her children with death. That's like double, right? (laughs) I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. (laughs) This is challenging, isn't it? Why the reference to Jezebel's children? Well, I thought about this, and there's a couple of different ways you can go with this particular segment of Scripture, but I want to talk for a moment about one of Jezebel who lived at the time of Elijah. I want to talk about one of her children and what she managed to do. 
There was a woman named Athaliah, and her, she was the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She was the only woman to ever sit on the throne of Judah, the throne that the lineage of David, right? She had no right to be there. Her son, Ahaziah, the, pre, the grandson of Ahab, ruled Judah and was a Baal worshipper. But when he was killed by Jehu in fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy, some of you are going to have to go back and read all this. I'm just trying to concentrate it down because it's not the main point, okay? But there is a very strong point that comes out of this. Uh, uh, when he was killed by Jehu in fulfillment of Elijah's prophecy, this woman, Athaliah, usurped the throne of Judah by murdering all the children of her son. In fact, all her own grandchildren except one named Joash, who escaped because Ahaziah, that king who was killed, sister, rescued the little boy and hid him away. The lineage of David would have been cut off had she been successful. Do you get this? She had no claim to the throne of David. But Athaliah stole it and perpetrated the worship of Baal. So a couple of things about this. The Jezebel spirit gives birth to spiritual offspring who have the same ungodly values until the whole culture is corrupted. We have suffered under generations of this within the Western church, let me suggest to you. It's been called out. You'll see later on this. It's been called out by prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And what I see is that uh, in the majority of the Western church, the Western church has fallen further and further and further into compromise. But God comes in his grace and his mercy to those who are hungry for him, who want the fire of the Lord. And he comes and he, he concentrates that fire into a body of believers who want what he wants. See, the Jezebel spirit wants to usurp godly authority. It wants to usurp godly authority. We'll come back to that concept in a little while when I get to my 12 points. <laughs> I don't think I'll ever do another 12-point message again, but, you know. Verse 24, Jesus goes on to say, Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, listen to this, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you had till I come. Jesus here calls everything to do with Jezebel and her doctrines the depths of Satan. And Jesus says to them, I'm so concerned about this. I'm not going to burden you with any other correction except this one. Jezebel has to go. And anyone who has embraced her and adopted any of her evil practices must Repent. See, the judgment needs to come on the spirit that's allowed in. But for those who repent, there is a purification where that thing is removed. So what is it about this spirit? In, in, you know, at the start of that, 
when it talks about Jesus with his eyes blazing like fire and his feet like burnished brass. What is it about this spirit that so enrages Jesus that his eyes blaze with fire? And here's my 12 points. And at this point, I'm going to invite you to just invite the Holy Spirit to put his finger on your heart in the places where you, where the Holy Spirit convicts, comes and convicts and you see that there has been an infiltration. So firstly, Jezebel hates godly authority. Godly authority is based on our covenant relationship with God through the pure, perfect sacrifice of Jesus' blood. Jezebel seeks to throw up enticing alternatives or to compromise our authority through sin. There's a word you don't hear very often in church. Jezebel seeks to usurp godly authority. It is subtle, it is cunning, and it is insidious. The Jezebel spirit seeks to marginalize God's appointed leaders and replace them with leaders who are not chosen by God. This has happened to entire movements across the earth. By doing so, Jezebel seeks to nullify the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit because Jesus, when he ascended, gave fivefold as gifts so that through those streams of authority, God's Spirit would be poured out and people would be raised up as true followers of Jesus. So, for instance, it's been known to happen many, many times that the leaders of entire denominations or Christian uh, movements are appointed who have good managerial skills or know how to do things from a human perspective. But God's ways are not our ways. And so when he releases apostolic authority, he releases it with the view that that apostle will reach into the areas that God appoints to them and take that territory. And it may not make sense to the natural man. It doesn't have to. You just got to have the conviction and the knowledge, this is where God has called me to go. I'm going. Secondly, point number two. I'm trying to lighten it every now and then because this is not a light message. Secondly, Jezebel hates the genuine prophetic voice. And if Jezebel, and I'm going to say she because it, right through the Bible it's she, right? So I'm, I'm not being, everyone understands it's a spirit, right? We're not talking, uh, Secondly, Jezebel hates the genuine prophetic voice. If she cannot silence the prophetic voice, she will seek to pollute or compromise that voice and lessen its influence. Why? Because a true prophetic voice will always speak out of a place of godly authority calling for repentance so that God can redeem our mistakes and restore our identity. (laughs) You know that the worst mistakes you have made in your life have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Even your mistakes will be used by the kingdom, in the kingdom, against 
the one that enticed you into the mistakes. I can't imagine how many people, how many people addicted to drugs have come to Jesus because of my testimony. <laughs> you know, the devil had me for a season, but he, whole lost, he lost a whole lot more as a result. He's a loser. Because God redeems our mistakes and then he restores our identity. And he doesn't kind of strip us of our identity and make us all into little robots that run around going, oh, God, what do you want me to do next? He actually knew you before he formed you in your mother's womb. He knew everything about you. And he wants the pure expression of that in Christ to emerge and flourish. Thirdly, Jezebel hates purity. Hates it with a passion. Baal worship in ancient Israel and Jezebel was responsible for the complete infection of all of Israel with his spirit. Baal worship in ancient Israel was full of every sexual sin imaginable and every abomination. It is no coincidence that the rise of Jezebel in the Western church has been accompanied by a flood of Christian leaders being caught in adultery, fornication, homosexuality and other sinful lifestyles. Pornography and sexual sin are two of the biggest problems in the modern church. We see it described here as a problem for the church of Thyatira and that problem is much bigger now. Which brings us to the question, what is sexual sin? Sexual sin is any sexual activity between anyone other than a man married to his wife. Everyone get that? That's easy to explain because it's supported throughout the Bible. It's not just in Leviticus, not just Leviticus 18, it's right through the Word of God. Any other stance taken by a Christian leader will involve the attempt to explain away what the Word of God says is behaviour that is sinful and unacceptable to God. God can redeem anything. He can redeem any aspect of any sinful lifestyle. And he does. Number four, false prophecy. False prophetic voices. Pastor Kerry spoke about this a couple of weeks ago on a Friday night. False prophetic voices and teachers water down the word of God. For instance, teaching that God does not see or care about your sin. I sat in a revival meeting a couple of years ago with somebody who has ministered internationally around the world preaching that night to an audience, some of whom were uh, churchgoers and some who had come in from outside. And these words came out of his mouth. God does not care about who you slept with last night. And my understanding of uh, the preacher's responsibility is that he preaches the word of God. And, And prophetic preaching involves not just telling the future, but telling forth the heart of God. That was not the heart of God. That is false prophecy. It gives people license to sin. 
These same false prophets and teachers will have sugar-coated messages pouring off their tongues, promising you great kingdom advancement at no personal cost. I want to tell you that every advance that I have made in the kingdom of God has had a cost attached to it. Unequivocally, I can say that to you. I can say that God uh, uh, held me up. He uh, sustained me. He blessed me. He gave me joy in the trials, but I was stretched. I was, uh, I, I, I was put in that place, which is actually a great place of blessing, where I had to get on my face before God and I say, God, I'm weak, but your strength is made perfect in my acknowledgement that I'm weak before you. And every time when God advances you in the kingdom, something of your flesh is going to get carved off. When we talk about false prophecy, I just want to just touch on something very, very lightly here. So, some, you know me too well, Kylie. Sometimes these false prophets will read the inner ambitions of the heart and then frame them as God's desire for your destiny. Who here has ever had an ambition? Come on, church. <laughs> Who here has ever had an ambition? <laughs> See, a false prophet operates in power, but a false prophet seeks to divert what God wants to do in your life. And I would call that sort of prophecy uh, nothing more than spiritual witchcraft. Because then it becomes all about me. If anybody's still keeping count, we're up to number five. We've got a ways to go, but it's early, so hang in there. (laughs) Number five, materialism and prosperity. The cult of Baal was all about prosperity. They had this, uh, this belief that it was Baal who was the god of thunder, storms, and fertility, and their uh, abhorrent sexual rituals that they performed, things like uh, temple prostitution and things like that, were done uh, to bring fertility to the earth. And so when they worshipped Baal in these dreadful ways, they were um, bowing to an idol that they believed was going to release prosperity to them. And so Jezebel seduces the church into the pursuit of material prosperity at the expense of relationship with God and serving the kingdom. And we'll, we'll come back to that in an expanded context in a couple of minutes. Number six is child sacrifice. You saw that Athaliah was quite prepared to kill every grandchild, even uh, her own grandchildren, for what she wanted to get. And I'm going to cut to the chase here and be controversial and say that abortion is the modern equivalent of child sacrifice. And can I tell you that yesterday morning I received an email from Lou Engel's ministry And it said the following, 
Luangle believes that just as two centuries of slavery brought a day of reckoning for the US in the Civil War in the 1860s, so now, and I quote, we believe God is bringing us now into a day of reckoning once again for the bloodshed of over 60 million babies that have been slaughtered in the womb since abortion was legalized in 1973. Now, he's not pronouncing judgment on the United States of America for this. His ministry is about drawing thousands of people together to pray and fast and repent so that America can turn and God's hand of judgment will be stayed. There are very respected prophetic voices in America that are now saying it's too late. And this is, what, this is why I believe God gave me those three prophetic visions for the United States of America because the hour is desperate for that, for that nation. And we have, uh, who here has been blessed by ministries out of the United States of America? My goodness. We've got people here that have been to the Bethel Supernatural School of Ministry or Randy Clark's thing. I know how influenced I've been personally by Randy Clark and, and, and the man has such an, an anointing to speak into denominations that don't even acknowledge that the Holy Spirit operates today. And uh, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Australia is not off the hook in that regard because on a per capita basis, our uptake of abortion has been higher than the United States. Number seven. <laughs> we just got past halfway. Manipulation and control. Manipulation and control is the ungodly, clever and unscrupulous influence I exert when I try to get you to do something that you would not otherwise do for my benefit or hold you back from what God has for you. My uh, ministry is to raise people up to heights that I will never reach myself. That means it's never about me. My job is not to draw you to me, it's to draw you to Jesus because when you are drawn to Jesus, everything in, in between kind of fades into insignificance. So when I preach a message like this, I'm pointing you to a closer relationship with Jesus. Actually, I heard my brother Mark who's here this morning. Welcome, Mark. Heard him years ago preaching in this church. All worship, all prayer, all preaching, everything we do in church has a goal in mind, and that is repentance. Do you remember that? <laughs> I remember it. I don't remember everything you said, but I remember that one. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> In the kingdom, so this thing about manipulation and control, in the kingdom, authority is exercised along lines of purity. I operate in authority as my heart is pure. So if I come to you and I say, I believe this needs to be changed, tweaked, corrected, any of those things... That any of that must be done from a heart of purity that sees this is where 
I see God taking you and this is the hindrance he wants to remove in this season of your life. If I ask you to do something in the authority that God has given me, there has to be a kingdom purpose behind it. Number eight, jealousy. Jealousy robs us of the joy we should feel when someone alongside us moves in great power of the Holy Spirit, grows in the anointing or is promoted in the kingdom. We should celebrate every breakthrough that all our brothers and sisters have. Amen. Number nine, seduction. You know, there's a story when uh, Jezebel gets thrown down from, it's not a story, it's in the Bible. <laughs> uh, it's recounted that Jezebel's there in her tower and she's got the eunuchs on either side. By the way, Jezebel emasculates the church. Some of you might not want to hear that. Um, She's standing there in the tower and she's got the eunuchs either side of her and she sees Jehu approaching um, and the judgment of God is about to fall but her last acts are to paint her face as if perhaps that seduction could work for her one more time. See, all of the things, those first eight points that I've, that I've raised... All of these so far have an enticing, seductive pull to them. Control and manipulation give people a false sense of power. Sexual freedom <laughs> seems enjoyable at first, but did you know that the, there, there is one way you can guarantee you will never get a sexually transmitted disease in your lifetime? Do you know what that way is? To remain a virgin until marriage and to stay faithful to your wife or husband. You will never get a sexually transmitted disease. Nature tells us, confirms God's intent in these matters. Number 10, syncretism. Syncretism is the allowing for the worship of other gods alongside the one true God. And it can be very subtle. Remember we were talking before about prosperity and materialism and these sorts of things that, the, that, that, that uh, Jezebel wants to do. This is what Jesus had to say in Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, mammon is a, uh, is a reference to prosperity. It's actually uh, a spiritual idol that is closely related to Jezebel. And so Jesus goes on to say um, in Matthew 6.33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. This is basic Christianity, right? So uh, if we get it around the wrong way, when we invite somebody to receive Jesus as Lord and Saviour, if we make Jesus an add-on, to uh, their life, no matter how full or empty it might be. And we promise them God is going to materially bless you. He's going to prosper you. He's going to do all these things in your life. And you should receive Jesus because he will do that. 
I want to tell you that that person's faith will not stand when it is challenged by adverse circumstances. The Apostle Paul said, I know what it is like to uh, be abased. In other words, have nothing left for dead outside a city. The other disciples come and pray over him. He gets back up and he walks straight back into the fire. He knows how to be, he knew how to be abased and he knew how to abound. He knew how to be, uh, he knew how, how to be poor and he knew how to be rich. Because his riches were in Christ, not in his material prosperity. So often now, preachers and evangelists offer the gospel as a path to a better, more prosperous life, when actually the prosperity that comes from God is a byproduct of being set free from sin and pursuing Jesus instead of wealth. I could give you... Dozens of, literally dozens of testimonies of what happened when God set me up in business. Just ridiculous, ridiculous testimonies. Like given a, just one. <laughs> just, just one, because God is outrageously generous. We need to understand that he is an outrageously generous God. Can I get an amen, Irene? <laughs> So blessed over the last few weeks. Amen, Kylie. Come on, who's, who's been blessed by the Lord financially? Look at all these hands going up all over the place. But we don't pursue him for the, for the prosperity. We pursue him and he goes, oh, by the way, have this. So, so I got, I'm not prophesying any new cars. So, so uh I had a business relationship with this company and the, uh, the managing director uh, rang me up and said, look, I've got a couple of documents that we need to put up on our website and, um, and can you give me a quote for doing that? And I said, yeah, sure. How do you want to do it? And I said, what about a price per page? And he said, yeah, no worries. So I thought he was talking about one document. And so um, I gave him the quote. He accepted it. And then a the courier turned up at my house with all these boxes of documents. And I sat there for a couple of days scanning and scanning and scanning and turning these, these things into PDF files, putting them on their website. Two days' work, about 38 grand. So, uh, <laughs> but I also know what it's like. <laughs> I also know what it's like. To have a moved house when I, when I moved to, um, to Sydney from, from down south and actually sitting down at the end of one week on a Saturday morning, no, Friday morning I think it was, and realising that my credit card was maxed out, didn't have money to pay the rent the next day and there wasn't much food in the fridge and being at the end of myself. I remember my mum praying for me. I rang her up and I said, this is what's going on. And she prayed for me in that afternoon. The Lord came through with uh, not one but two very substantial jobs for my business at the time. See, God's in the business of taking us to the edge so he can prove his faithfulness. And when he, when he, when he proves the faithfulness, we know it's got nothing to do with us. Amen? Uh, what was that? Number 10. We're nearly there, guys. Number 11. Anyone want to... Anyone wanna, have a guess at what number 11 is? Radical feminism. <sighs> no, I'm not talking about the burning of brassieres. Thank you so much. 
The Jezebel spirit manifests in radical feminism because radical feminists seek the eradication of what they describe as the patriarchy. This is part of the usurping of authority, right? So Jezebel, in a political marriage to Ahab, comes in and she begins to undermine her own husband so that she can have control over what's going on. So they, they seek to eradicate what they describe as the patriarchy, right? You ever seen that in your newspaper reading? Oh, we're pulling down patriarchal systems. You'll find it all over the Black Lives Matters website, by the way, um, which is a political organisation. Let nobody make a mistake about that. But see, God established the marriage covenant for us with families led by husbands, isn't that right? Anybody can. <laughs> I've never met an Italian that wouldn't say amen to that, my friend. <laughs> Got both hands up. So this is our responsibility as husbands to lead the family. And all you girls that are saying yes, amen, don't forget that means you submit. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm surfing this wave and I'm trying not to fall off. <laughs> this is the truth of the word of the Lord. Okay, number 12. Number 12, Jezebel is a political spirit. Now, when I say political, I'm not talking about Trump and Biden, God bless them. I'm not talking about Scott Morrison. What I mean is a political spirit infecting the church. Um, like I was just talking about, Jezebel's marriage to Ahab was one of political expediency so that Israel and the kingdom of Tyre would have stronger ties. But this was in direct opposition to what God told Joshua when they took the promised land. Destroy every inhabitant in the land and remove all the idols. They didn't do it. And then later on they wanted a political alliance between Israel and Tyre. So they had this marriage. Jezebel, high priestess of Baal, comes, usurps the authority of Ahab, her husband in Israel, and Baal worship becomes rife right throughout the nation. Jezebel seeks to infiltrate church movements to paralyze and subvert the move of God. Jezebel uses people obsessed with their own agendas and political power plays, often using numbers games to undermine what God wants to do. Where do I go with this? <laughs> I've seen this happen. I've seen this happen. You know, movements are movements because the Spirit of the Lord move, moves them from place to place. When the presence of God lifts from a certain thing that God has done and the, and the presence of God begins to move... Then those who are forerunners, those who are prophets, those who are apostles say, that's the new thing that God is doing. This is where we're going. But those who have their own fleshly or selfish agendas in mind say, no, 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 we've got something good here. We just need more structure. Remember what I was speaking about a few weeks ago with Paul. 
where everybody, where every, every place that he went to on his way back to Jerusalem before he was imprisoned in Rome, every place he went to, there were people coming up and saying, oh, no, no, you shouldn't go, you shouldn't go. The chains await you, persecution await you, all these things await you. But he saw the kingdom purpose, that the Roman Empire at its heart in Rome would be infiltrated by the gospel. And a couple of hundred years later, the whole place became Christian. See, all of these things, these 12 points that I've mentioned, they're all linked to Jezebel. And if we want to step into what God has for us as forerunners, we must be ruthless in examining ourselves. Is that right? There's a scripture that says something like, uh, spirit of a man is the searchlight of the Lord. Yeah, or searchlight. In other words, when we open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit under this type of preaching, which I don't do very often, like a 12-point thing saying this, 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 and this needs to go and we get very specific about it. When we open up our hearts for the Holy Spirit to search us, guess what? He's going to say, well, actually, John, this point here. A few weeks ago, God got me up in the middle of the night and I just knew I had to get on my face before him. And when I did, God pointed something out to me. It wasn't something that I'd done, rather something that I'd left undone. I needed to deal with something that, I, that, that needed to be done. It needed to be done straight away. It needed to be dealt with so that there was no question of integrity or anything else around any decisions that I'd made. When we open up ourselves to the Spirit of the Lord, sometimes it's not comfortable. It's not supposed to be. Because the, the, who likes getting stabbed with a fork? No one, right? <laughs> but it's because it hurts your flesh, right? The fork goes, oh. oh. It's interesting that we teach our children never to stick your hands in the gas flame on a stove, but, but we've got to run into the fire. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> God has uh, for us, as for, uh, if we're going to step into everything that God has for us as forerunners, we must be ruthless in examining ourselves, repenting of and renouncing the influence of these things. And then exercising that authority that comes from the resulting purity. Every time I repent of something and it's eradicated from my life, there is a greater anointing of purity upon me. And then exercise that authority over every increased sphere of influence that the Lord entrusts to us. Now let me give you a little bit of an apostolic view of what I believe God is doing in this season in our church about why he's putting his finger on this Jezebel thing. I believe that God is uh, currently now, in ways that we don't yet understand, expanding our sphere of influence in various ways. And he's going to ask us at different points to step into these territories that he wants taken. And he wants us to go into those places with a model of what a Jezebel-free church looks like. 
Because the kingdom forerunner presents to those who don't yet know Jesus, the kingdom forerunner presents what is possible when you have a completely submitted life and ministry before the Lord. What's the point of taking territory if you take a poisoned culture with you into that territory? God wants a pure, spotless bride through whom he can pour out his spirit. Yesterday, um, yesterday morning as I was waiting on the Lord about this message, um, I heard the Lord say to me, this is about taking a stand. This is about taking a stand. And now I, I, I'm going to finish this message by uh, with a passage of scripture that is not directly linked to Jezebel, but it hit me in the face as I was preparing this message. I'm just going to read this to you, see what it speaks to you. As for you, son of man, the children of your people are talking about you beside the walls and in the doors of the houses. And they speak to one another, everyone saying to his brother, Please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you, as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. Indeed, you are to them as a very lovely song of one who has a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not do them. And when this comes to pass, I'll tell you what this is in a minute. When this comes to pass, surely it will come. Then they will know that a prophet has been among them. Does anybody know where that's from? I know. No, actually, no. John, I'm shocked. <laughs> it's actually from the book of Ezekiel. It's from the book of Ezekiel. Yes, <laughs> a contemporary of Jeremiah's. What is the context of this scripture? See, I read this on Friday morning, I think it was, and it hit me in the face. The context of this is that he was pronouncing that the day of reckoning was at hand for Jerusalem. And I thought about this. Please come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people. They hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their own mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. That is a damning indictment. It is an indictment by God himself speaking to this prophet, saying, warn my people. 
And then I thought about it some more because I thought about the other prophets. I thought about Hosea, Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha. All these prophets going back to Moses who said, when you do this, this, this and this, when you get to the promised land, when you bite out of those idols, you're going to bring great trouble upon you. And I began to think about it and I began to think about those people in Jerusalem who had had the opportunity to sit under the teaching of the Lord for generation upon generation and then God sends Ezekiel and Jeremiah just before the fall of Jerusalem and he gives them this message to preach to them. Jeremiah was so distressed by what he was called to carry and the lack of response to it that he wished he was dead. He actually says this in Scripture, Oh, that I was not born. And so you, you, you think to yourself, prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, coming to his people saying, this has got to go. And nothing changes. Or if it does, it's only for a short season. And then they return to what they were doing before. And then I began to think about what would appear to the human eye to be the futility of it. The futility of carrying a godly message to a people who do not respond from their heart and in their actions. Wasn't this a futile message? Didn't Jerusalem fall? It fell, right? Despite everything that these guys did, the sacrifices they made, the way they poured out their lives before the Lord, the agonies that they went through of persecution, that they would not compromise the truth, and yet Jerusalem fell. It wasn't futile. You know why? Because there was a remnant. There was a remnant. There was a remnant at the time of Elijah. I have preserved 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. There was a remnant in every season. That one daughter, uh, that one uh, sister of, the, of that king at at Athaliah's time, who said, the lineage of David is about to be cut off. I must save Joash. The remnants. And then I thought about it going forward into our day today and what we, the culture we are surrounded by, confronted by, the demands that the church bow to Baal. This is what's being asked of the church in our season, that we bow to Baal that we accept any type of ungodly relationship or behavior, that we worship at the, at the altar of prosperity and pretend to ourselves that everything's okay around us. This is what's being demanded of us as the people of God. And it is time for the people of God to take a stand and say, no, I'm not just going to hear, I'm going to do. And so then I thought about the modern day prophets just in the last couple of generations. Men, prophets and watchmen such as Leonard Ravenhill, David Wilkerson, Rick Joyner, Jeremiah Johnson. They come and they warn and they warn and they warn and they warn. And they say, church, repent, get 
every influence out of here that has anything to do with Jezebel because I have a godly purpose for you. This remnant shall rise. This remnant shall come into everything that I died and rose again for you to have because my blood paid the price. Can we have the worship team up, please? I am not going to entice, cajole, or manipulate you into an altar call. Not that I ever have. But some preachers can get you to do whatever it is they want you to do in response to a message. I believe we all need to think about this. Because there is a key to the deliverance that God promises. I'm going to be speaking about this next week. I'm not going to give you any spoilers. But I will ask you to do this. I would ask you when you go home today and over the next few days, as you've been sitting in the presence of the Lord today, go back to this message if you have to. Go through those 12 and go, God, where is the influence of this thing in my life? Because I want it gone. And so as it has been for months now in this gathering of believers, this is a call to purity. This is a call to holiness. This is a call, call to sanctification. This is a call that we receive the, the refiner's fire. The prophetic word over Open Heaven Church is that this place will be a crucible for the fire of the Holy Spirit. And so my invitation this morning is to welcome the fire. Doesn't need big manifestations. It can be you just sitting quietly in your seat. It could be you out the front presenting yourself before the Lord. Because God won't let me let go of this underlying theme. Every week I'm going... Give me a nice, encouraging message. But anyone who has a desire for God will be encouraged by this message, right? Because I'm encouraged by it. I don't want the influence of those things in my life. I don't want them to be influences in your life. Because as we are free of these things, so we can relate to one another in godly purity and honesty and all those things, and we can move forward as a church that's united in the power and purity of the Holy Spirit, take territory from the enemy for God. We don't just take territory for God. We take it from the enemy. Thank you, Lord.